You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. All right. Some Labor Day weekend tunes. Hope everyone's having a great one and uh, getting excited. One week from right now, the city and really the country will be all aflutter. But here in New York, we uh, will be in full preparation for what's got to be the most highly anticipated NFL season in New York in at least a half decade. Uh, The Giants will be hosting the Dallas Cowboys next Sunday night at MetLife Stadium. Uh, Patty Trana covers the Giants for SI.com, also the host of the Locked On Giants podcast. Patty, how you doing? I hope you're uh, enjoying your last NFL this weekend of the year. Yeah, I am. Thank you so much for having me on. It's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you as well. And I saw, Patty, you had put out a poll over the weekend on social media um, asking what is the biggest concern for Giants fans about the team this year. And the Giants offensive line won that poll in a landslide. So my question to you, is that the biggest concern that you have for this team heading into the season? I think it's one up. I mean, the uncertainty of that offensive line, who's going to be the left guard? Has Evan Neal improved enough at that right tackle spot? I mean, now it's going to start counting for real, as you know. And, and uh, you know, the line, what we saw of it, there was hints of um, positivity, I guess, going forward, but not knowing what they're going to do. Are they going to go with a rotation? How's that going to work out? How's the rookie center going to held up? against some of those pass rushers and blitzes that he's going to face. So a lot of questions there that we're going to get answers to hopefully in the coming weeks. You know, it's funny because it wasn't that long ago that there was serious concern about Andrew Thomas, who was the number four pick in the 2020 draft after his rookie season. Is it, and I know he signed the big contract extension, is it a foregone conclusion that that spot on the line right now, at least that spot is set going into the season? You don't have to worry about it? Oh, I think without a question. I mean, Andrew Thomas has been playing at an all-pro level. He got uh, he should have been a pro bowler last year, but he just missed out on that. But I believe he was second-team all-pro. I mean, the, the growth that he has shown has just been absolutely amazing, and he's earned that contract. Other concerns, and I hate to start with the negative, but that's where we are. But what, what are some other concerns um, that you have for this team heading into the season? Well, I don't think this one. This is one that a lot of people are talking about, but special teams still concerns me, specifically the coverage units. Um, it just seems like once a game, the Giants are out kicking their coverage on the punt team. And then, you know, I go back to last year. I, I want to say there were a couple games, the most notable one being Seattle, where you can make a case that special teams cost them that game. So I would like to see a little bit more consistency in the coverage units. And I get it that special teams can be kind of tricky because you never know who you're going to have from week to week. But I haven't really seen somebody really step up and be the David Tyree or, you know, for those of you who are are as old as I am, the Renee Thompson of the unit to just come in and just kind of, you know, lead that group and be consistent every week. One week until we have Giants football. Patty Trainer covers the team for SI.com. Patty, let's talk about Daniel Jones. And if you can, um, compare the difference where he is right now entering this season as opposed to where he was just in terms of command of the team and his spot on the team at this time last year. Oh, night and day for sure. Daniel Jones, and I've been saying this, uh, he's walking around with a swagger. He is much more confident. He's much more at ease. He's making quicker decisions. He's playing faster. He's, he's, he's 
his voice is louder, if you can believe it, you know, in the huddle, that is. He's still the same soft-spoken, say-nothing guy in pressers. Um, it, it's night and day for him. He, he's coming off arguably his best off-season, his best summer training camp, and you can just see it in how he's carrying himself on the field and how he's just, you know, playing the game. You know, I thought one of the most impressive things about him last year, Patty, was as the Giants continued to lose weapons, you know, from Wandell Robinson, obviously they lost Sterling Shepard very early. They didn't get anything out of Kenny Galladay. But as the season went on and they seemed to lose more and more weapons, he seemed to get better and better. Um, obviously, he had Saquon alongside him, which certainly helped. But now this year, and, and, and the biggest weapon they brought in was Darren Waller. And, and it seems like the chemistry there is great. But watching these guys throughout training camp, what has that chemistry been like between Jones and Waller? It's been amazing, you know, considering those guys hadn't worked together, the way they have come together and built that chemistry so quickly. It's like they've been playing football together for years. I mean, it's just Waller is just such an amazing athlete to watch. I mean, I don't think anybody can really cover this guy. He's just such a big target. You know, he's difficult to cover. He's good with positioning his body between, you know, the ball and the defender to make sure the defender doesn't even get a hand in there. And Daniel, you know, if you think back to when Eli Manning had classical Burris and what Burris did for Eli Manning when he was, you know, around the same uh, point in his career as Daniel is now, and you saw what a difference that made for Eli, and I think Darren Waller can make the same kind of difference for Daniel at this stage in his career. Patty, Joe Shane spoke with the media earlier this week. I think it was you who followed up uh, on something he had said at the end of last season that he wanted to close the talent gap between the Giants and, and Philadelphia and Dallas specifically. So how much have they done that, if they've done that at all? I think you can make a case that they closed it up with Dallas for sure. Um, I, you know, Dallas, I think, you know, I don't want to disparage Dallas, but, you know, I, I think the Giants have had a little bit better success and that they've been able to beat Dallas uh, here and there in the last few years. Now, with the Eagles, um, I, the best thing I could say is that the Giants have added speed on both sides of the ball, which they did not have, and that was a big, big problem for them. Um, when they faced Eagles, as was the fact that, you know, the, the play in the trenches was a big problem for them. So they addressed the two biggest areas in which they were weakest against the Eagles. Now, have they closed the talent gap? I don't know. That one we're going to probably have to wait and see. But, I, you know, when I look at the Dallas roster and I look at the Giants roster, I think maybe they're a little closer there. But as Joe Shane said, you know, we're going to see once the game starts. You know, Patty, it's very rare for leading into a football season here in New York for the Giants to fly beneath the radar. But that's what's happened this offseason with the presence of Aaron Rodgers and the expectations surrounding the Jets. I'm curious, is that something that – do you feel that's something that they're actually kind of okay with, that they're a little beneath the radar this year? I don't think it matters to the Giants, to be honest with you. I mean, I think when they say, look, we're only worried about ourselves – I think that's the smart approach to take because, you know, you can't control what people think about, you know, who's the, the, the big brother of New York and who's the little brother. You can only worry about what you need to do. And, you know, that's the approach I think that Brian Dable and, and Joe Shane are trying to stress in that locker room. And you hear that from the players. So, you know, are they okay with being the little brother right now, you know, on paper? I, I, I would say it doesn't matter to them, you know, would be my guess. 
So last year, Dable and Shane both come in at the same time in their respective roles, and it's clear that Dable was a star year one. It's always uh, more difficult to tell, uh, especially in the first year, the kind of job the general manager is doing. But now that we enter Shane's second season in constructing this roster, how would you assess the job that he's done here so far? I think so far he's doing a really good job. You know, he's exercising patience when he needs to. And I go back to last year how, you know, everybody was saying, oh, you got to trade for a number one receiver. You're going to go to the playoffs. You need a number one receiver. And what did he do? He held his water. He didn't trade. You know, then you look at some of the value that he's gotten in the draft class. You know, this past draft class, every single player that he drafted was, uh, you know, I, I think more highly rated than where they went in the actual order. Uh, you look at the trades he made, you know, to get Isaiah Simmons for a seventh-round pick. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, some people say, well, you know, the Cardinals might have caught him anyway. Yeah, but the Giants were, what, what 26 in the waiver wire order? So for Shane to give up a seventh-round pick for a guy who's low cost and, you know, if he doesn't work out, you can cut him and you're fine. You know, that was a smart move. So he's just made a lot of smart moves. He's been very patient. You know, he's extended guys who he knows are, are going to be part of the team's long-term fabric. He's waited on other guys. He's managed to cap fairly well. I mean, they still have some cap issues they have to clean up still. But uh, overall, I think he's doing a fantastic job. And But, you know, the, the end result is obviously wins and losses. And if they can go back to the playoffs, then you can say, yeah, you know, this, this is really, you know, where you want the franchise to be at this stage. Patty Trana covers the Giants for SI.com, and you mentioned the Isaiah Simmons trade, which was interesting. And as you remember, if you go back to 2020, when he was picked, I believe, eighth by the Cardinals, he's a guy that a lot of people wanted the Giants to pick when they were picking number four. So now they do have him. Um, He has never missed a game in his three seasons in Arizona. Do you see him, and you've seen very little of him, I understand, but do you see him playing a prominent role at the start of the season? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, he's got so many things he can do. And, you know, the thing that I think the Giants need to be careful of is when you have a jack-of-all-trades, you usually get a master of none. So I'm fairly confident that Wink Martindale will figure out where he's at his best and just, you know, deploy him in those roles. I mean, you can't really ask the guy to do everything because, like I said, then it becomes a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none situation in most cases. But I think, you know, as a pass rusher, he definitely improves that unit, you know, in terms of uh, patrolling the second level for coverage, not necessarily dropping back in coverage, but just kind of manning that second level. You've improved there as well. And, and uh, you know, the run defense, we'll see how he does with that as well. But I think they vastly improved with the addition of Isaiah Simmons. Yeah, and you talk about the defense. and. Uh, the job that Wink did with that unit last year. And if you look at the numbers, I don't think they jump off the page, but if you watched this team week in and week out, they, they were clutch, and the defense was such a, a huge part of their success last year. And again, that might not be reflected in the numbers. But as you look at that group this year, what would you say is the strength of the Giants' defense in 2023? Well, I know they've added the speed. Like I said, speed has been huge. Um, they've upgraded the run defense, which last year was a big, big problem for them. I think they finished 27th in the league. So I think the, the addition of Bobby Okereke at uh, inside linebacker is a, is a very underrated but yet important thing. 
So right now, if I had to say, you know, what's the strength, I'm going to go with, you know, the run defense. I think they vastly improved it. You know, I like the combination on the outside linebacker spot of Thibodeau and, and uh, Ojulari. I think if those two can stay healthy, it creates a pick-your-poison type of scenario. And then, you know, they've upgraded the back end of the defense because, you know, we talk about the pass rush. You need the back end to hold up their end of the bargain so that the front seven guys can do their thing. So, but uh, strength-wise, I think you got to start with the run defense, and I think they finally added some guys who can really help them you know, shore up that unit. Patty, as we said, um, and as you know, that they got a lot out of a receiving group last year that didn't really have any big names. And this year, Waller's here, and he's the top receiving target. But as far as the wide receivers themselves go, how does that shake out? Who is on top of the depth chart as we head into week one in that group? I think it's going to rotate depending on, on the opponent. I mean, I, they don't have a number one receiver um, Joe Shane said, you know, look, you'd like to have a number one receiver, but, you know, a lot of teams who, who weren't in the playoffs last year had number one receivers and didn't go very far. But, um, you know, it's all about matchup football. So I think, you know, one week you could potentially see Paris Campbell be the guy, and then maybe the next week Darius Slayton becomes the guy, and then the next week maybe it's Jalen Hyatt. they just got so many options. And the one thing they really couldn't do – last year on offense that I think they can do now is play matchup football. And that's so important. I think that's why, you know, we talked about Wink Martindale's positionless, uh, off, uh, positionless defense. The Giants are kind of gravitating towards a positionless offense with some of their skill position guys. You know, so you'll see Saquon Barkley maybe lining up as a, as a slot receiver or out wide. You'll see Paris Campbell in the backfield. So it's really going to be interesting and a lot of fun to see how Mike Kafka, the offensive coordinator, deploys all these people. Do you think Sterling Shepard has a role? I do. I do. Definitely. Sterling Shepard, you know, he's uh, he's the oldest and, well, well, the longest tenure. Let's not call him old because he's not that much. <laughs> he's not an old man by any stretch of the imagination. But he's the longest tenured guy. He's uh, a veteran. He's very, un- I think he's very under the radar uh, by a lot of Giant fans. You know, he's a guy who a lot of his teammates go to him for advice, you know, to bounce things off. Um, he's next to Jalen Hyatt in the locker room, which is really a good move, I think, because Jalen can learn a lot from Sterling Shepard. Um, on offense, I'm not going to say that Sterling's going to have as big of a role that maybe he's had in the past. But as a supporting cast member type of role, I think there's definitely something there for him if he can stay healthy. And and lastly, Patty, I have to ask you about the most important player on the team and Saquon Barkley and just where he is after a disappointing contract negotiation during the offseason. Where is he now as he gets set to play for real? Yeah, I think he's locked in and, and, and ready to go. I mean, it's interesting. Saquon had a very quiet summer. I don't think uh, I wrote about him a whole lot other than, you know, to mention the occasional play here and there. He didn't speak to the media on a regular basis other than, you know, the the start when he came into camp. He's locked in and focused. And, like you know, Mike Hoff has been using him in different ways, you know, out wide in the slot and from the backfield. So I think they're going to really, you know, tap into – Saquon's desire to to be a part of that offense, to be a part of the team, help them win. But uh, I like what I've seen from him because, you know, it's it's very rare that a, a big name like that has a quiet camp. But in this case, I think quiet is good for Saquon because I think he's going to come out and surprise a lot of people if he's able to stay healthy. 
Patty, thanks so much. Have a great rest of your weekend and looking forward to continue following your coverage. It's going to be an exciting season. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me. Patty Trana covers the Giants for SI.com, also the host of the Locked On Giants podcast. So a couple of concerns. Uh, obviously, the offensive line continues to be a concern. And Patty brought up an important point, special teams coverage. And that's something that in general tends to fly beneath the radar. It's also something that football fans know can cost you games. And if it costs you one game, it could cost you a spot in the playoffs. So that's something that the Giants are going to want to get shored up before week one next Sunday night against Dallas. 1-800-919-3776. It's Pat O'Keefe on this Sunday morning here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. About halfway through Labor Day weekend. It is Sunday fun day on 98.7 ESPN. Presented by Grand Marnier. Grand Marnier takes cocktails from ordinary to unforgettable, adding a layer of sophistication to some of the world's most well-loved cocktails. Well, a minute 35 to go in this FIBA World Cup basketball game, and it looks like Team USA is going to suffer its first loss of the tournament. Lithuania jumped all over them in the first quarter, outscoring them 31-12. to U.S. was down by 17 at halftime, and they cut it to two here in the fourth quarter. But Lithuania with a late surge, I think they're up by eight points with about a minute and a half to go. Nine points with 135 to go. So the loss isn't going to be damaging to the U.S.'s World Cup championship hopes. They are still on to the knockout round. They're still into the quarterfinals, I believe, win or lose in this game. But this is a huge, huge win for Lithuania. I don't know that Lithuania, you know, they were the first team, if you go back to um, the Olympics in 1992, when Lithuania was the, the bronze medalists that year. And they were the first team that was kind of the, the biggest contender to even give the Americans a game on the international stage. And obviously countries like, you know, Argentina, which won the gold medal in the Olympics in 2004, uh, France, Greece beat the U.S. in 2006. Uh, France beat them in the last Olympics, even though the U.S. ended up winning the gold medal. You know, other teams have beaten the United States. I don't know that Lithuania ever has. And there's a shot of Jonas Valanciunas, who is a very good NBA center, long time with the Toronto Raptors, the Memphis Grizzlies, and now with the New Orleans Pelicans. And you've got to imagine how much this means to him because, you know, he's the face of this team. And even though both teams are moving on, um, this is just a, a monumental win for that country's basketball program to beat the United States. And again, a lot of a lot of Knicks flavor on the Lithuanian side. Former draft pick Ignis Brasdakis, uh, Rokas Jakubaitis, who the Knicks still have control over him. He's a 22-year-old point guard who they drafted in the second round in 2021. He's somebody that the Knicks potentially are still counting on to be a part of their team in the future. And Mindaugas Kuzminskis, who was a bench player for the Knicks about six or seven years ago when Phil Jackson was in charge of constructing the roster. So the U.S. looks like they're on their way to their first defeat uh, in the World Cup, and then it is on to the knockout stage. Great job uh, by Patty Trainer, by the way, joining me for the talk on the Giants. In a few minutes, we're going to have Brian Hoke to switch the conversation to the New York Yankees and where they stand. It's been, it's been a great weekend for the Yankees. And how long has it been since we've said that? They, you don't want to make too much about two games. I understand that. But when the Yankees 
before this weekend, when was the last time, seriously, when was the last time that the Yankees gave their fans something to get excited about? It was probably Domingo Herman's perfect game on June 28th. That was probably the last time. And then they beat the A's the next day on the 29th, and then they went to St. Louis, a bad St. Louis Cardinals team, and lost two out of three. And they really stumbled into the All-Star break when they had the chance to beat up on a soft spot of their schedule. And then they came out of the All-Star break. That soft schedule continued in Colorado and then in Los Angeles against the Angels, who were playing without Mike Trout, and they didn't have to face Shohei Otani. And they lost five out of those six games, and they further buried themselves. And then, of course, the nine-game losing streak in the middle of August. And next thing you know, they're out of playoff contention. So the only thing left to get excited about are the young prospects, especially Jason Dominguez, who has looked pretty good his first two games. But it's not just Dominguez, and it's not just Wells, and it's not just the continually, continually improving Anthony Volpe. The team seems to have a little bit of a bounce in its step these last two games. And maybe it's because they're playing the Astros. Maybe it's because of this young, exuberant uh, talent in Dominguez and Wells. Who knows what it is? Brian Hoke's next. Um, He's there, and uh, he'll share his thoughts on what he has seen from the kids of the Yankees these last couple of games on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. All right, real quick, Yankees talk coming up. My heart did just skip a beat. I'm watching the closing seconds of this World Cup game. Jalen Brunson went up for a three-pointer and came down and landed on the defender's foot. He gets three free throws, but (laughs) that's literally, and just ask Met fans, that's literally the last thing that the Knicks need is for Jalen Brunson to suffer an injury in a FIBA World Cup game. All right, enter the ESPN New York no-hitter sweepstakes for your chance to win $25,000. Find the no-hitter tile on the ESPN New York app, pick a team, and submit your entry. Today's qualifier is Carlos Aguirre Osuna from White Plains, New York, who has chosen New York's American League team to throw a no-hitter today. Presented by Mohegan Sun casino.com for full contest rules go to espnnewyork.com pat o'keefe back with you here on this labor day sunday morning it's been a very good labor day weekend so far for the new york yankees baby bombers part two perhaps brian hoke has covered the team for a long time for mlb.com also the author of the recent book 62 joining us now from houston brian good morning to you how you doing today i'm doing great thanks how are you I'm doing well, and it's been uh, a surprisingly delightful weekend of a summer that hasn't provided many of those, Brian, for Yankee fans. So, you know, in the middle of it, following along these last two games and recognizing that it is only two games, but what's the feeling around this team after these last two games with the kids in Houston? Well, definitely, I think the most important thing you can say about it is there's hope now, Um, and not necessarily for this year, although it has been fun to watch this weekend and the way this has uh, progressed, and obviously there's been so much hype about Jason Dominguez for years and years since he was uh, 16 years old, and now to see him come up to the big leagues and first swing, hit a home run off Justin Verlander. I mean, you know, as, as Austin Wells said after the game, you can't write it up any better than that. Uh, it, it, it mirrors 
what Judge did when he came up in 2016 in his first at bat at Yankee Stadium, and he homered back to back with Tyler Austin. So it's it's always fun to watch the kids come up and get their feet wet. But what I think it really shows you is there's hope for next season that you're not going to repeat this disaster of a year, and uh, you're going to change up the cast here, and and they uh, should be a competitive team again in 2024. And that's that's the most important part of what I've seen the last two days. You know, we saw the excitement on the broadcast after Dominguez got back to the dugout after that home run. They were so excited for him, they didn't even do the rookie thing where they ignore him. They just jumped right on him uh, right away. But, you know, afterwards, in the clubhouse, you know, what was the reaction uh, from his teammates, especially his veteran teammates, about what he had done in his first at-bat? No, the guys guys were pumped, and I think Judge talked about it when he said there was just a different energy even on the bus in their hitters meetings i mean the guys were excited to get a look here at the future and there's so many uh guys on this roster now 25 and under and they all played a contributing part last night in the game you got uh austin wells picking up his first rbi everson Pereira came through with the go-ahead hit there uh oswald peraza had three hits in the game so um it hasn't just been the Dominguez show, although, of course, he's getting the headlines and he's going to get a lot of the attention wherever he goes here. Uh, I'm very curious to see what the reception is going to be like when the Martian gets to Yankee Stadium uh, for this homestand here coming up. But uh, already, what a great first impression for these kids here. Last night, Johnny Brito coming out of the bullpen and giving you three and two-thirds innings. I mean, uh, you're really giving these kids a chance to shine and show what they can do. And they're, they're playing not just now, in this hostile environment here at, in Houston, which is great experience for them, but uh, they're also going to get a chance to, to really start building their cases to make the opening day roster next year. Yeah, Brian, it is interesting because obviously Dominguez is the headliner. He's the one with the nickname that we've been hearing about since he was 16 years old. But Austin Wells is also a, a key part of this, so perhaps a little overshadowed. So tell us about him and how he is thought of in the Yankees organization. No, they think of him highly, and, and you know, the bat is his big um, attribute there. They, they want him to stick at catcher. He wants to stick at catcher. Uh, it's been a little bumpy defensively. He's had some trouble throwing runners out, but that's a work in progress there. They're going to give him a chance to test himself against um, big league competition, and honestly, he's, he's handled himself pretty well here through the first two games. Carlos Rodon said the other night, how, uh, how well he and Wells had worked together. They actually – uh, got to work together on a rehab start, I believe, in Somerset earlier this year. So they wasn't completely unfamiliar, but uh, he he's done a nice job guiding the the, the pitching staff back there. And uh, I think that going into next year, you can make a legitimate case that uh, look a left-handed hitting catcher. We've talked all year about how the Yankees need more left-handed balance. When you play 81 home games in Yankee Stadium, to not have enough left-handed bats in your lineup, that's a crime. And so uh, to have Wells, who could potentially be a contributor against big league pitching, you're going to have Jose Trevino coming back next year, so maybe you have them in a lefty-righty platoon. Uh, I think that that's a pretty good way, if you're going to set that up for next season, uh, to have Austin Wells as a big part of your catching tandem. I, I think that that might be a way the Yankees want to go. So you think that assuming everything goes well, and again, we're reacting to two games and they've been exciting, but assuming sure. everything goes well the rest of this month, you think uh, it's, it's a reasonable hope for opening day next year, Dominguez is the starting center fielder, and Wells is at least part of the rotation behind the plate? 
Absolutely. I, I think that you wouldn't be bringing these kids up here in September if that wasn't part of the equation. And so there's no guarantees. Obviously, uh, they've got to get through September. They've got to get through spring training healthy, and they've got to win the job. But I, I think what you do is you set them both up in a situation where they come into spring training next year and the same way they did with Anthony Volpe this year – said, all right, we're going to give you a legitimate chance. It's right here uh, for Dominguez center field, for, for Wells catcher, uh, for the other kids as well, too. Uh, give them a real shot and say, all right, let's see what you can do. Now is your chance. Go out there and get it. And, and we didn't really think in spring training that Volpe was a legitimate contender to, to uh, open the season at shortstop. And I don't think anybody would have argued back in February. I mean, he barely played a triple-A, the same way Dominguez has barely played a triple-A. And so I, I thought the most likely scenario this spring was going to be that Volpe would open the season at triple-A and maybe he got a call-up during the year. He accelerated his timetable by having such a great spring. So I, I think that what that shows Dominguez, what it shows Wells, what it shows the other kids is it can be done. Like, go out, play great, uh, outplay your competition, and you'll be in New York. Personally, Brian, I think one of the smartest things the Yankees did this season was keep Volpe in the starting lineup. And we know he went through a lot of struggles early on. Uh, and it seems like he's come out of that for the better. So uh, size up his year for me. How much better is Volpe right now uh, than he was the first half when he was going through those struggles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely found something, especially offensively. Um, you look at it on on, its, uh, on the statistics here, like he's had a 2020 season. That's pretty solid for a rookie shortstop coming up. I don't know how much more you would have expected. Uh, defensively, he made a really nice play. He made a Derek Jeter-type play, a jump throw uh, last night. So he's been solid at shortstop. I, I've, I've liked a lot of what Volpe has seen, and we knew coming into the year Look, there were going to be some growing pains. This kid was not going to come out of the gate hitting 400 the way he did in spring training. And uh, it's, it's different when you get into the stadiums with the three decks and, and the big crowds and the lights are on and all eyes are on you. And he, he definitely went through some growing pains one, uh, for a pretty big part of the season. Batting average was low, but he has made some adjustments here and of course, we all talked about the, the chicken parm dinner and how that, uh, that became part of the storyline this year with Anthony Volpe. But I think uh, on the whole, you look at him, he, he had a really solid rookie year. Uh, it's hard to imagine it having gone a lot better now when you zoom out at 30,000 feet and you take a look at uh, where he's probably going to wind up this season to, to be a 2020 player there. I, I think that that's Exactly. That's actually more than I would have expected from Volpe uh, when he became the opening day shortstop. He's shown more power than I expected. And so I, I think that it gives him a really, really strong baseline to build on for uh, what the rest of his career could be. Because, you know, as the Yankees continue to say, he's going to be a, a really good player in this league for a long time. Speaking with Brian Hoke, longtime Yankees reporter for MLB.com, also the author of a couple of books, most recently 62, detailing Aaron Judge's historic home run chase last season. Uh, you mentioned Johnny Brito and what he did yesterday, but the young arms, a couple of interesting ones, including Brito, including Randy Vasquez, who seems like, Brian, he pitches well every time he pitches. Um, where are they in the pecking order? Are, are they in the mix to be factors on this team next season? 
Yeah, I think so. I, I think that you can already pencil them in as potential back-end guys. And look at the way the Yankees came into spring training this year. I mean, they thought they had a stacked pitching rotation. You know, Aaron Boone said it's the best rotation that we've ever had in my time here. And then, you know, one by one, the guys started going down. Frankie Montas didn't give you a single inning. And Luis Severino has been very up and down. Carlos Rodon's only made nine starts for you. So if we've learned one thing about pitching, especially with the Yankees and really around Major League Baseball, is that rotations are so fragile. And there's not many Garrett Coles out there who are going to take the ball every single time for you. So you're going to have to call on that depth. And so, um, you know, I, I think that one of the big – when you look at this Yankee team this year, there's not many guys you would point to and say they outperformed what I thought they were going to do. You know, Glaber Torres had the year that I kind of figured he was going to have. A lot of guys underperformed. Um, but one of the guys who has outperformed what I envisioned coming in has been Clark Schmidt, who has really rounded into a – solid big league pitcher and I think he gives you a chance to win every time out so you put him as maybe your number three maybe your number four starter next season you can uh, feel pretty confident with that going in so as far as the guys like Brito and Vasquez I I think they come into spring training uh, trying to compete maybe for a number five spot and you know as we've seen throughout the year, uh, those opportunities are going to come. So even if you break camp as the number five starter, even if you break camp as uh, one of the pitchers down in Scranton, uh, you're going to get your chances to contribute at the big league level. And so uh, it's an important development year for both those guys. And Brian, Rodon's a very important guy because with the amount of money that he is owed over the next four years, it'd be very damaging if it doesn't work out and they don't get more out of him. So how has he looked to you since coming back from his second IL stint? A little better. You know, Aaron Boone said that uh, that was the best we've seen him uh, this this start in Houston. But uh, if you told me on the day that they signed that contract that we would be here on September 2, September 3, and he was going to have made nine starts for the Yankees, then I would have said something went terribly wrong. And so, obviously, this has been pretty much a lost year for Carlos Rodon and uh, not what he expected coming in, certainly not what the Yankees expected coming in. So, But this has kind of been part of his track record is the injuries are an issue. And he'd been healthy the last couple of years. This year, uh, not so much, not the story. And Brian Cashman even said that. I remember on the day of the press conference at Yankee Stadium, he acknowledged, look, there is a lot of risk involved in this signing. And so, um, you know, we've seen these contracts in years past where they've brought in free agent pitching and it just hasn't worked. I mean, Carl Pavano, remember, uh, you know, <laughs> the American Idol. Uh, that was the, uh, the nickname they gave him in the, the New York Post. And so, look. Rodon does not want that to happen to him. Uh, he doesn't want to have that reputation. So uh, the most important thing for him is to stay healthy, uh, take, keep taking the ball every five days, and give the Yankees what they know they can get. Because um, look, when he's healthy, when he's right, he's one of the better starters in Major League Baseball. He's one of the guys that uh, the Yankees, uh, you know, Aaron Judge, when he was negotiating his contract with Hal Steinbrenner directly. He said uh, he was one of the guys that he pointed to and said we could really use a guy like Carlos Rodon at the top of the rotation to pair with Garrett Cole. And so uh, they got him. They went out and spent the money. They got him. Now Rodon's going to hold up his end of the deal. A couple more for you, Brian. Uh, Glaber Torres, what's his future with the team? That's a great question. You know, I I think that – 
um, you know, Hal Steinbrenner has kind of outlined that he sees Volpe and Oswald Peraza as the future up the middle. And so where does that leave Glaber Torres? And obviously Glaber has missed the last couple of days here with uh, some lower back tightness. They don't think it's too significant, but um, you know, that, that I do wonder, you know, long-term are, are they committed to Glaber Torres? Is he part of the, uh, the future outlook of this team. I'm not sure at this point. I guess a, a lot of that's going to depend on when he gets the free agency, uh, what kind of contract he's going to be looking at. So, you know, when you forecast Glaber here, he's been a productive player. He's been actually one of their more consistent players this year. Um, I, I think that do you look five, six years down the road and still see Glaber Torres as part of uh, the answer here? He's certainly not part of the problem. He's been pulling his weight on this team. But I, I do wonder what the future outlook here is, and we're going to have a lot of questions about that this offseason. I won't be shocked if the Yankees – uh, consider trading him again. You know, we we saw that at the trade deadline last year when they uh, they were talking to the Marlins about Pablo Lopez and and Glaber was dangled in that. So I think that that certainly could happen. He's not an untouchable here, but uh, he is reaching a crossroads here in his Yankee career. I know he'd love to stay. He's talked about that. He'd love to sign a long term contract extension. As we all would, right? Um, so uh, the question is, uh, where, how committed are the Yankees to Glaber going forward? And I, I, I do think that the one thing when Hal talked about, I see Volpe and Peraza up the middle, Hal's at the top of the chain. He's making those calls. And so I, I think that that leaves Glaber as the odd man out long term. And that kind of answers my last question I have for you, which is the multi-million dollar question. And it's, how do you see the Yankees approaching putting together next year's team in the offseason. Do, do you see them spending above and beyond what they have already spent? Because clearly there is some infrastructure problems on this team. You mentioned the lack of left-handed hitting. The starting pitching depth has been a problem. And there are several other areas. So do you see them spending above and beyond what they have already spent to try to shore up some of those deficient areas? Yeah, and don't forget, they're going to have some money coming off the books here. You know, guys, obviously they... They've released uh, Josh Donaldson, but Luis Severino is coming off the books here. Frankie Montas, you're not going to pay him for next year. So they do have a significant chunk. I believe it's probably about $80 million coming off the books for next year that they can reinvest into the team. And But I, I think they're going to have to do something on the free agency market. And obviously Cody Bellinger it would be a perfect fit if you go out and get him and plug him in the left field. I mean, uh, you could do that. I, I think that uh, Blake Snell is the free agent that I would take a look at. Uh, he's He's been pitching great this year. Obviously, he has some experience in the American League East. So uh, I think it has to be a blend. Uh, the Yankees, as we learned in 2016, they'll never fully commit to a youth movement. They're never going to tear it down and, and rebuild, especially with um, Judge and Cole and guys like that in the prime of their careers. They're going to have to build a supporting cast here because one thing they cannot do with their business model, being in New York City, they can't fall into a 1965-ish type uh, doldrum here where this is the, the story year after year. They're going to they're gonna have to be competitive and have a real, you know, Hal Steinbrenner always says, championship caliber team. They're going to have to have a team that you can look at on opening day next year and say they have a chance to win a World Series. And that's, uh, that's what they're going to do this offseason. So I, I think that some of these kids are going to get a look next year, but there's also going to be some free agent signings to come. And uh, stay tuned on that because uh, I, I think it's going to be a busy offseason in Yankee land. Brian, great job as always. Appreciate you coming on with us today, and uh, we'll talk to you down the line. Thank you. You got it. Thanks for having me. Brian Hoke, who covers the Yankees for MLB.com. So a lot there. And, you know, he said at the very beginning of our conversation, and I, I can't reiterate this enough, but 
when the season has gone the way that it has with the Yankees, they have been such a, a disappointment and given you so little to um, hang your hat on. These last two games, and we'll see if it trickles into a third game today, if it trickles into another series this coming week, but at least after these last two games, you have given your fans a little bit of hope with the young kids. Because if, you know what, we'll, I'll, I'll get into that. We'll, we'll take a break. We'll get into that and the ramifications of really what's on the line for the Yankees over the final month of the season with the Dominguez's and with the Wells's and Pereira and Peraza, who seems uh, to be a big part in all of this. And, of course, your calls and your reaction to uh, that. 1-800-919-3776 here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. So a lot has been made about the Yankees the last couple of days. The big question I have for people is, if these young kids, if Dominguez continues to play well and Austin Wells shows you something, and the Yankees actually start winning some games. I mean, look, I know the Tigers are a terrible team, but now they've gone to Houston and won the first two. They've won, all of a sudden, five of their last six games. Not that they're crawling back into playoff contention. That's not at all what I'm saying. But just the act of winning games is something... That has grown foreign to this Yankees team. But if you can get something out of Dominguez and Wells, and again, on the Mets, we'll include Ronnie Mauricio for purposes of this conversation. If the Met fan uh, can get something out of him over this last month, I'm curious if that keeps your attention longer than if they were just playing out the string. Because for the Yankees, it's been a very long time since they've played out the string. And you really do have to go with nothing else, you know, with no other carrot for the fans to come and enjoy. Um, you got to go back to before the strike. Because even in the four years since the strike that the Yankees missed the playoffs, they were, in the month of September, they were still, you know, a good week away from finding their way into the playoffs. Like a good six out of seven away. And perfect example, the Yankees just won five out of six, and they're still nowhere near playoff contention. So they are not anywhere near playoff contention this year. And you've got to go back to 1992, the last time the Yankees finished below 500, for that to be the case. In 92, the Yankees, on September 1st, were 61-71, and and they were 14 games behind first place Toronto. And that was Buck Showalter's first year. There was no wild card that year either. So... It was really win the division or you don't go into the playoffs. And then in 1993, the following year, the Yank that was when things started to turn around for the Yankees. On September 1st, the Yankees were only a game and a half behind a powerhouse Blue Jays team that would eventually go on to win the World Series that year. And as late as September 18th, the Yankees were only three games back. So if you think that Yankees before the strike were never in playoff contention until after the strike. That's not true. Because in 1993, they were three games back on the 18th of September with a record of 83 and 67. They're nowhere near that this year. So all you have is the hope that these prospects can show something this year and be a part of the equation next year. Because And it was interesting to hear Brian Hoke say that he didn't discount the fact that the Yankees are going to be busy this offseason and that they're going to spend money. And he did mention the 80 or so million dollars coming off the books. But is that even going to be enough? And are they going to spend that money smartly? 
because that's been the biggest problem because between trades and free agent signings from going back to the John Carlos Stanton trade, which I have spoken plenty about, the Frankie Montage trade, the Sonny Gray trade, um, the Carlos Rodon signing, obviously the disaster of a trade with Minnesota for Josh Donaldson. Um, the money has not been spent wisely. The money has been spent. It has not been spent wisely. So if you look at this Yankees roster, there's going to be plenty of holes to fill. And there's no way they can fill them all on the free agent market or through trades. You know, right now you look at the lineup. Catcher, there's a hole. First base, there's a potential hole. Second base, no. Torres right now is solid, and he might not even be the answer. <laughs> Shortstop, you're fine. Third base, there's a hole. Left field, there's a hole. Center field, there's a hole. All due respect to the two games that we've seen Jason Dominguez play. So basically, you're looking at the Yankees lineup, and there's holes everywhere, but second base, shortstop, and right field. So wouldn't it be wonderful if you're the Yankees and you can fill some of those holes internally? Center field, catcher, second base with Peraza, and then if... And Michael Kay brought this up on his show on Friday. If Peraza is the second baseman of the future for this team, first of all, you would love to see him hit above 140. But secondly, if Glaber Torres continues with the organization and you shift him to left field, well, then that could plug in another hole as well. So what's at stake right now for the Yankees is you're trying to... The, the, the ship is leaking. The boat is leaking. There's a bunch of holes that you need to plug. You're trying to plug as many of them internally... As you can, which is why Dominguez and Peraza and Austin Wells are so important. I, I don't know that Everson Pereira is part of the long-term future, but when you're talking about Yankee prospects and guys who were unheralded when they came up and turned out to be much, much better than you thought, you know, my thought always goes back to Robinson Cano. When the Yankees brought him up in 2005, almost as an afterthought, and he turned out to be Robinson Cano. And to give an example from the Mets, Jacob deGrom, when they brought him up, I believe, in 2015. And he never left, except many, many trips to the injured list. He wasn't unheralded. You know, you had Syndergaard, and you had Harvey, and you had Mats, and you had Wheeler. deGrom was at the bottom of that list, and he was the best pitcher. Turned out to be the best pitcher out of all of them. So you never know. So could Pereira fall into that category? Perhaps. You hope. But that's also hoping that everything goes right. And what are the chances of that happening? But the bottom line is the last two games have been exciting for both teams, even though the Mets lost last night. They've been exciting for both teams. You get a glimpse of the future. The kids are producing. We'll see how they can keep it going. Interesting start to the college football season yesterday. Thoughts on that next on 98.7. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.